Hey everyone, Steve Shepard here. Welcome to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. Today I'm going to talk about genetics, among other things, but along the way we're going to duck into quite a few little rabbit holes, so tighten your seatbelts, this is going to be fun. Gregor Johann Mendel was born in 1822 in Heinzendorf, Austria, a very rural area with lots of farms. So when he went to school, he was quickly recognized by his teachers as a better-than-average student. He did really well in physics and math when he got to college, and in spite of the fact that he suffered from really serious depression, he did well, and he graduated in 1843. But then life for Mendel took a really interesting turn. His father assumed that upon graduation, Gregor would take over the family farm, but he had other ideas. He decided to become a monk, and he joined the Augustine Order of the St. Thomas Monastery in Birno, a city in what is now the Czech Republic. As it turned out, this wasn't such a bad idea for somebody like Gregor. This particular monastery was sort of the cultural and scientific center point for the region, and the research conducted there, not to mention the fact that it had a huge library, caught Gregor's attention. After working on math and physics under Christian Doppler, yes, the same one, the guy that discovered the Doppler effect, and botany under Franz Unger, who pioneered the use of microscopes in botany and was also a pre-Darwin supporter of the concept of evolution, he became a teacher and started the work that would ultimately define him and that he would become famous for. It all started with peas. Now, I hate peas. If they get anywhere near my mouth, I start to get really twitchy. Now, this comes from a guy who has routinely eaten crickets in Mexico, caterpillars in Africa, scorpions in Thailand, and any number of unrecognizable things in China. Don't ask. I can eat just about anything, but peas, I draw the line. Anyway, Mendel, while working in the monastery's garden, noticed that pea plants had different physical characteristics that were maybe random, but most likely not. Now, as early as the 1850s, it was pretty widely accepted that parents passed on a sort of a diluted alphabet soup of characteristics to their children. It was also pretty widely accepted that hybrids would ultimately revert back to their original normal form and wouldn't pass on any permanent changes to their own progeny. What limited the knowledge of the time was the fact that there had not yet been any long-term studies done because the science was so new. In Mendel's case, he studied this hybridization phenomenon with his pea plants for eight years and had tens of thousands of plants in the garden to observe, so his results were statistically valid. The physical differences that Mendel found were easy to observe. Some plants were tall, some were short, some had smooth peas, others were wrinkled, some had yellow peas, others were green. Makes no difference to me, they're all disgusting. Because he could segregate the plants by unique characteristic, he did, and then he began a careful series of experiments in which he crossbred plants with opposite characteristics to see what happened. From these experiments came two major observations that he called the law of segregation and the law of independent assortment. Now, the law of segregation says that parents randomly pass on traits to their offspring that are either dominant or recessive where dominant traits always express themselves, while recessive traits typically don't. The law of independent assortment says that when traits are passed from one generation to the next, they're passed on independent of one another. One trait that's being passed down doesn't affect the likelihood of another one being passed down. Mendel then extended his theories, saying that while his work was done on pea plants, all living things followed the same two laws. Now, at the same time, you've got to understand that Mendel didn't know anything about DNA or chromosomes or any of the other insights that we know today as the science of genetics. 
But he was right in his conclusions, and his laws are largely correct, and they form the basis for quite a bit of modern biology. All right, so now we're going to take our first fork in the road in this story. I want to review some basic botany. Flowering plants reproduce exactly the same way that humans do. Think about the structure of a typical flower. The petals, which are colorful to attract pollinators like bees and butterflies, surround the reproductive organs in the center of the flower. At the very center is a structure that usually looks like a round bottom flower vase with a long neck. The round bottom houses the plant's ovaries, which, just like all females, produce eggs. This structure is called the pistil. Now, surrounding the pistil are long filaments with small, dusty-looking structures on top of them. These are called stamens, and the dust, which is often orange or yellow, is pollen, or said another way, the plant's sperm production machinery. The pollen is sticky, and it attaches to the insects that brush against the stamens so that when they fly from flower to flower, they bring a little gift with them, another plant's fertilization machine. The pollen grains land on top of a flower's pistil, and within minutes of touchdown, they grow what's called a pollen tube. That tube carries sperm from the pollen grain to the egg, which it then fertilizes. Now, once the egg is fertilized, in other words, the flower is pregnant, the plant surrounds the fertilized egg, which will become a seed with a fleshy material that usually tastes good. We call it an apple, or a rose hip, or a peach. And why does the plant do that? Well, first, to protect the baby that's nestled inside, but also to spread the seed from the tree. After all, animals, including humans, eat the fruit. And then by doing so, in various ways, they spread the seeds far and wide where they become new plants, thus extending the range of the species. All right, you've stayed with me this far, so let me take you down a different genetic rabbit hole for just a moment. It's common knowledge that inbreeding is bad. It tends to bring out genetic traits, those recessive traits we talked about earlier, that are often best left hidden in the dark chromosomal closet. Plants can self-pollinate, but it usually results in a kind of a depression of the vitality of the plant because inbreeding isn't good. So to get around that, life has found a way, to quote Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. It turns out that plants have really mastered the fine art of genetic partying. First, they pull a kind of a berry white number on all the pollinators, the bees, the butterflies, the flies, even birds, by displaying petals that just scream nectar. The pollinators land, little hairs on their bodies get covered with pollen as they drink from the forbidden well, and when they're ready to move on to the next watering hole, they do so, carrying pollen with them. The pollen gets brushed under the top of the pistil on an adjacent plant, where it begins its job of burrowing down to the egg. This process guarantees what biologists call hybrid vigor, or minimal inbreeding. So the goal is for one plant to pollinate another plant as often as possible to guarantee that a good mix of genetic material ensures long-term hardy outcomes. In other words, the traits from the DNA of one plant are mixed with those from another plant to create a hybrid as often as possible. Okay, time for another course correction. There's a very different and interesting field of study in the world of human psychology called confirmation bias. It's a tendency that most of us have to remember, interpret, or seek out information, data in other words, that supports whatever pre-existing beliefs we have. This bias can lead to attitude polarization, which is what happens when an argument becomes increasingly bitter, even when the two arguing individuals have exactly the same data to draw conclusions from. 
It can also lead to something called belief perseverance, which is what happens when people continue to believe something, even when all the evidence points elsewhere. We're seeing a lot of that these days. And frankly, it occurs to me that that's one of the main reasons I started this podcast in the first place. I guess I should slow down and explain the long, strange ride that we've taken so far in this episode. Remember, we started with Gregor Mendel discovering and tracking the passing along of inherited traits in pea plants back in the 19th century. And then we went to basic botany and plant reproduction. From there, we made a side trip into a little discussion about basic genetics. And somehow we ended up here talking about confirmation bias. So much for the shortest distance between two points being a straight line. Why this long and winding road? Well, it's so that I can talk about genetically modified organisms or GMOs. Now, before you get out the pitchforks and the torches and go storm the castle, just bear with me for a few minutes while I do this last piece. I think you'll find it interesting. Remember, the whole point of this podcast is to create curiosity because curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding, which steps us away from confirmation bias and opens up our thinking to different points of view. So, GMOs. Years ago, I read an article in the paper about fields of strawberries that had been genetically modified to be resistant to cold, which meant that they could be grown later into the fall without being damaged by an unexpected early frost. Now, I thought that was pretty amazing. The article explained that geneticists, working closely with farmers, had isolated strains of strawberries that had a natural resistance to cold and then crossbred them with other strawberries to create a frost-resistant plant. Now, while that was pretty amazing, it was far from the first attempt to use genetic modification to engineer a better organism. In 1921, Frederick Banting and Charles Best, both physicians, were working hard to find the cause of a terrible wasting disease that killed hundreds of people every year, and which no one understood. Its cause was a mystery. It later was called diabetes. After exhaustive research, they discovered a substance produced by tiny little organs inside the pancreas called insulin. This discovery saved countless lives. Insulin was harvested from the pancreas of slaughtered cattle and was literally a lifesaver. In 1978, 57 years later, another breakthrough occurred when bacteriologists working with geneticists figured out how to genetically modify certain types of bacteria and yeast so that a byproduct of their regular routine physiology was insulin. To say it in a slightly different way, insulin is a byproduct of the very first commercial GMO. And today, that product keeps hundreds of thousands of people alive. Here's another interesting story. Most vaccines are the result of genetic modification. They're grown in either chicken eggs or some kind of nutritious bacterial soup. And using DNA splicing, another name for recombinant DNA, they've been engineered to produce precisely the right antigen to fight off the disease that they're designed to beat back. Here's another one. In the 1980s, a virus burned through the papaya crop in Hawaii, essentially wiping out the industry, and it's a big industry in Hawaii. Scientists were actually able to save it by genetically engineering a strain of papaya that's resistant to the effects of the virus, and today, it's once again a major crop in Hawaii. In Africa, one of the biggest challenges, especially in the hot, dry Sahara region, is crop destruction from prolonged drought. Hundreds of thousands of Africans die every year from malnutrition, much of it brought on by crop failure due to a lack of water. 
But genetic engineering has resulted in the production of drought-tolerant crops, including corn, that can withstand the harsh conditions in the driest regions of Africa, reducing the level of starvation dramatically. Another important food-related GMO is something called golden rice. Other than minerals, it turns out regular rice doesn't have a lot of nutrients, and it's especially low in vitamins. And yet it's consumed in huge amounts in poor countries because it's cheap, it's widely available, and it's filling. It just doesn't provide much in the way of nutrition. So geneticists modified it to create what's known as golden rice, which is extremely rich in vitamin A. Now, how did they do it? Well, they added genetic material, again, recombinant DNA, from daffodils and a specific bacterium and maize to the genetic makeup of regular rice. The result is a dramatically improved health level in the developing world, especially among children and pregnant women, because they now have access to vitamin A. Here's one of my favorite stories from the world of genetic modification. It turns out there's a highly versatile plant out there called Brassica. That's the Latin name of it. It's a member of the wild mustard family, and it's been successfully hybridized, meaning genetically modified, to produce a broad range of variants, all of which are desirable foods. These variants include broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, some cabbages, and kale. So yes, even some of those delicious veggies that you eat every day have been genetically modified. This is why I brought up the subject of confirmation bias a little earlier in the podcast. Every time a honeybee lands on a flower to drink nectar and then flies to an adjacent flower clothed in a coat of pollen, genetic engineering is happening. The DNA from one plant is combining with the DNA of another plant, resulting in more hybrid vigor. Genetic recombination is a necessary, critical part of life. When scientists use gene splicing to insert DNA from one plant into the DNA of another, they're doing exactly what nature does all day long. They're just doing it more precisely and with a specific outcome in mind. But let's be clear and let's be fair. This isn't to say that GMOs are perfect. There have been some challenges associated with them. For example, one of Monsanto's most successful products is a genetically modified strain of soybeans that's resistant to the weed killer Roundup, which also is a Monsanto product. What this means is that farmers can apply Roundup to their soybean fields and it kills the weeds without affecting the soybean crop. But here's where things can get a little squirrely. If one farmer plants Roundup-resistant soybeans and the farmer next door doesn't, and the first farmer sprays his field with Roundup and it drifts in the breeze onto his neighbor's field, it can hurt or even kill the crop because those plants aren't resistant to Roundup. Now, clearly that's an issue, but it's not a GMO issue. Creating a plant that's tolerant to a weed killer is good science as long as it's regulated properly and as long as farmers use it correctly and as long as it's tested for other effects before it's put into commercial use. But the genetic modification did exactly what it was supposed to do and no more than that. So here's another issue. Because farmers can use Roundup more freely with the soybeans that aren't affected by it, they do. And there's concern, and rightfully so, about overuse. Glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is showing up in the food chain. And while it's considered to be a safe herbicide for use in food production, it's certainly not desirable for it to be eaten. But again, this isn't a problem with the science of genetic engineering. This is a problem of regulation and enforcement. If regulations are stringent and properly enforced to the point that they limit the amount of herbicide that makes its way into the food chain, then the public is protected. What this really seems to be, at least in my mind, is a business issue more than anything else. 
Monsanto, for example, has created a product that, by its very nature, essentially requires everyone to use it. If a farmer plants Roundup-resistant soybeans or corn, and his neighbor doesn't, and the first farmer sprays with Roundup, there's a good chance the second farmer's crop's going to be affected and not in a good way. So based on that, this isn't a flaw in the science that controls genetic modification. It's a problem of monopoly position. That's not bad science. That's a challenge for regulators. The truth is that, for all intents and purposes, 100% of the food that we buy from the grocery store, even the foods that are labeled as organic, have been genetically engineered in one way or another to make them easier to eat or to make them taste better. I mean, think about it. Knowing what you now know about flower anatomy and reproduction and so on, do you really think that seedless grapes or seedless watermelons occur naturally? Of course not. And so many of the things that we enjoy every day, like tomatoes and corn and beans and chickens and canola and cotton and kale and soybeans, they're all GMOs. That doesn't make them bad. The science behind genetic modification is sound. Management and regulation are the part that need work. Okay, enough conspiracy bashing for one episode. Get out there and do your own research. Do some additional reading. Reach out to me if you'd like some sources. And thank you for being curious. That's what this is all about. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.